You're listening to Exceptions Welcome, the podcast for programming bootcamp graduates and other new or early career software developers. We're your hosts, Ben Wellhelm and Colin Miller. We're a couple of self-taught developers with 25 years of experience between us, and we met as bootcamp instructors. Uh, we thought there was more to be said after the graduation day. A quick note before we get started, if you find Exceptions Welcome useful and you want to help other people find us too, we'd appreciate it if you leave us a review. The easiest way is to go to ratethispodcast.com slash exceptionswelcome. Again, that's ratethispodcast.com slash exceptionswelcome, all one word. Don't worry, I'll remind you again at the end. We are here this week with Chris Ferdinandi. Uh, Chris helps people learn vanilla JavaScript. He believes there's a simpler, more resilient way to make things for the web. Chris is the author of the Vanilla JS Pocket Guide series, creator of the Vanilla JS Academy training program, and host of the Vanilla JS podcast. His developer tips newsletter is read by thousands of developers each weekday, and he's taught developers at organizations like Chobani, the Boston Globe, and his JavaScript plugins have been used by Apple and the Harvard Business School. His ideas on building a simpler, faster worldwide web were featured in Net Magazine. Chris Coyer, the founder of CSS Tricks and CodePen, has described his writing as infinitely quote-worthy. Chris loves pirates, puppies, and Pixar movies, and lives near horse farms in rural Massachusetts. He runs Go Make Things with Bailey Puppy, a lab mix from Tennessee. Chris, I'm so happy to have you. We are so happy to have you. Welcome. Welcome. Thank you. It's uh, it's great to be here. I know that you're more happy to have me here than Colin, but what can we do? <laughs> well, I, will, I was. I'll edit that out. I would have believed that, but then you said that you live by a horse farm, and that's really what I want to talk about. Nice. Yeah. So that's that's the topic of today's show. Mm-hmm. Horses. Mm-hmm. JavaScript awesome. horses. Horse JS. Uh. <laughs> um, Chris, why don't you uh, give us a start? Just um, what are the vanilla JavaScript guides, and and why did you write them? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, um, uh, let's see where to start on that. So the vanilla JS guides are these really short focused, um, tutorials on JavaScript topics, um, in either like ebook text-based form or video form or both, depending on how you prefer to learn. Um, and so they're designed to be really, um, like quick in and out, like learn all the ins and outs of a topic in an hour. So you can get back on to just doing your work and getting stuff done. Um, and so these um, these were kind of born out of my frustration with the JavaScript learning process. Um, I was finding that a lot of uh, a lot of the available learning materials out there um, <clears throat> were um, uh, were they're like really, really long and super in depth. A lot of them presumed you had like all this background knowledge that like I didn't have. Um, a lot of the kind of the free articles that I would find online were incomplete or outdated. Um, and uh, yeah, I just wanted something that was like really simple and written in plain English and um, like almost something that like the missing documentation, like the missing user manual for JavaScript. Um, I feel like the Mozilla Developer Network is pretty close to that, but the articles are kind of hit or miss because um, it's a community driven site. So some are better than others. Um, and I, I hear from talking to other beginners, and I experience this too, that a lot of them are written in a way that um, works if you already have a good technical background. But if you're new to it, um, a lot of like the terminology they use and the way they've structured their articles is kind of over people's heads. So um, I just wanted something that was really like short, simple, plain, easy to kind of digest and move on. Um, and one of the things that's always kind of amused me is like a lot of these courses and tutorials um, use how long they are as a selling point, like 80 hours of video. And I'm like, man, I, <laughs> I barely have time to watch like TV shows and like read books that I'm, I'm interested. Like, there's no way I'm going to get through 80 hours of training. That's like two, two like full-time work weeks worth of stuff. So I like, I need something like quick. Um, and so that's really kind of the, the focus with, with those is, uh, you know, um, just what you need to know. Um, and I'm not going to presume you know anything when you go into them. Uh-huh. And so who is your, other than not presuming any any base knowledge, yeah. who is your sort of target uh, target audience here? Yeah, I love, I love beginners. So I wrote these for people who were like me when I was starting out. Um, so these are typically people who are um, 
brand new to the web development field, or they've been working in tech, maybe in like a design capacity or like just with HTML and CSS and they want to move into JavaScript um, uh, or, you know, go from like design to development. Um, and I also get a lot of folks who are like career changers, like they've been working for 10, 15, 20 years and they're looking to do something different. Um, they want to get into web development. Um, but so it is, it is, you know, just in a word, it's beginners. Um, it's people who are new to development or in, in particular JavaScript. Very cool. Uh, I yeah, feel like I awesome. have, oh, oh, no, sorry. Go, go ahead. Yeah. I feel like I have a personal notion of what I think vanilla JS means, but I think it might be helpful to hear like, what, what do you mean when you say that? Yeah. And, um, vanilla JS is kind of a loaded, um, it's a tough term. Like a lot of people hate it. Um, so when I say vanilla JavaScript, I mean um, coding with native JavaScript methods and browser APIs instead of frameworks and libraries. So just using what the browsers give you out of the box instead of libraries and frameworks. And that doesn't mean like never use any code you didn't write yourself. I think a lot of people, when they think vanilla JS, they think that means like you're hand coding everything and you're never taking advantage of the wonderful ecosystem of stuff that's out there. Um, and I think that is way too rigid of a, um, like a definition. It's certainly one that I would, would not adhere to. Um, I, for me, it's about being more deliberate about what you, what you use. So it's, you know, it's, it's when it's simple to do so, just kind of using your own stuff. Um, it sometimes means like cherry picking some small helper functions and things like that, instead of choosing a big library, um, it means using plugins that are dependency free instead of ones that require React or Vue or jQuery or um, underscores or something like that to work. Um, uh, yeah. Um, and it, it's a term that I think sometimes causes folks confusion because um, it kind of sort of started as a joke. There's this um, website out there, vanilla-js.com, that talks about it as if it's a framework. Um, and it's really, really tongue in cheek. It's like, you know, it's the framework that powers a hundred percent of the web and, you know, it, it, it weighs just, what is it? I think they say it weighs like just zero kilobytes. Um, and there's even like a link to a CDN with like an actual file. And like, I've seen people get like, they get so tongue in cheek and at no point did they like tip their hand and tell you like, ha, ah, it's a joke. And so like, I've seen people be like, like literally tweeting the guy who created it, like, um, Hey, you know, the file is coming back empty. I think there's something wrong with the NPM package. And like, you know, it's just really, um, it's, uh, yeah, I, I get it, but like, I hate that website because it confuses so many people. Um, right. And so it started as a joke and then people started using the term like to mean like not a framework. And, um, we hit this point, you guys have probably run into this. Like when you look up anything, like when you Google anything JavaScript or anything like on Stack Overflow, um, you're constantly getting back like, here's how you do it with jQuery. Here's how you do it in React. And so finding things that like don't use any of those is really, really hard. I found even in Stack Overflow, if you type like how to do something without jQuery, you get back a ton of jQuery <laughs> responses. And um, not just from people ignoring what you asked, but like, jQuery itself, like for some reason, likes to, um, I mean, uh, the having the word jQuery in the search term means you're going to end up with those things. And so vanilla JS came, became a way to like filter out that stuff or be like, not those things. Um, and so it still confuses beginners sometimes, but it's, uh, it's definitely a term that, um, has stuck and, like I've heard people advocate for like, well, what about plain JS? Cause like vanilla is still a flavor or, um, you know, like what about like just JavaScript? And it's like, look, I, I get what you're saying, but the reality is like those things turn up a bunch of other stuff. That's not what you're looking for. And vanilla right. JS does not. So it's useful to have like good. a label or a tag for that kind of thing. Yeah. It may not be perfect, but it's the one that's here. And so like, like it or not, that's just kind of, <laughs> that's the, um, that's the term. But yeah, so it's it's in a nutshell to answer your actual question. Uh, Vanilla.js <laughs> is um, uh, just browser native JavaScript. Right on. Yeah. I so you've you've referred to uh, I I don't want to say um, you've referred to jQuery a few times in I don't want to say a degrading light, but maybe maybe something you want to move away from. Um, yes. 
what so i started writing javascript around Mm -hmm. 10 years ago and i looked at jquery as this amazing thing that that abstracted away all of the the browser inconsistencies that made targeting dom dom elements so easy but i basically haven't written jquery since Mm -hmm. and so i wonder if you can speak a little bit more to like what does jquery become and why why do you feel there's a benefit to getting back underneath it and and how have the browsers evolved in that time yeah so i just i want to start this off by saying i absolutely love jquery as okay a, someone could someone could totally take that out of context and like just play uh-huh. on loop and make me like if i was running for like javascript office they could use that <laughs> against me but um yeah so i i love what jquery did for the web um yes. so without jquery modern javascript as we know it today would not exist all of the like all of the modern methods that make the stuff that jquery used to solve easier only exist because jquery showed us an approach that would be better um like from you know array loop methods to even just like selectors like you remember how hard it used to be to like get an element by class like mm-hmm. um and so jquery was created at a time where like javascript was really um crappy and the horribly implemented across different browsers and um, all the browsers were kind of doing their own thing a little bit differently. They weren't really adhering to standards. And so, yeah, jQuery abstracted all that away and said, rather than having to do all this, if this user agent do this, otherwise do that, you could just, you know, write it once and jQuery would figure that all out for you. And that, that was, that was terrific. Um, I feel like jQuery's ultimate goal should be to deprecate itself. And, um, like, I think that's true for any library or framework not just jQuery, like React, Vue, as kind of the approaches that they have popularized get baked into the core, their ultimate goal should be to kind of fade off into existence. Like once the browser does the same things, like, I don't know, you shouldn't like cling to your old glory. Like it's time to just let go, you know? Um, And so like with jQuery, so many of the things that it solved are now solved by the browser itself. Um, getting elements by any sort of selector that you could use in CSS can be done very trivially with Query Selector and Query Selector All, which have incredible browser support. Technically, back to IE8. Um, pragmatically speaking, back to IE9 because a lot of the more modern kind of selector patterns don't work in IE8. Um, but you know that's like that's 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 really good browser coverage. Um, yeah. Looping through things really really easy. You don't have to use a for loop ever if you don't want to anymore. Um, adding and removing classes really easy. What? You know uh, jQuery has you, all these helper methods. How do you loop without it. a for loop? Yeah, so um, I'm a big fan of using the array for each method for like a lot of things. I also, depending on what I'm trying to do, I'll use some of the, the other array looping methods like map and filter and uh-huh. things like that. Um, And I will also use the array from method to take things that aren't arrays, but are collections of stuff and convert them into arrays so I can use the for loop, the for each method with them um, rather than the for loop rather. Um, Adding and toggling classes with the class list API. Um, It uses the same approach as uh, jQuery's add class and remove class and toggle class methods. just so many, even like, you know, uh, the, uh, sorry, I'm kind of jumping all over the place here, but like the jQuery Ajax methods, um, fetch has the same level of simplicity and ease that they did. Um, Mm -hmm. and, uh, yeah. So these days it's really hard for me to justify, um, 30 kilobytes of gzipped and minified code that the browser has to compile and parse before it can do anything. And then everything you do is a little bit slower because it's running through that jQuery abstraction. When browsers offer approaches that do the same thing with the same level of ease out of the box. Um, Uh The biggest argument I've heard in favor of jQuery is, well, I've heard two. One of them is, well, it lets you write less code. And to an extent, that's partially true. Um, The the dollar sign selector 
approach in jQuery is way less verbose than document.querySelector and document.querySelector all. And I really wish they'd come up with better names for those. Um, but you can convert those into helper functions to simplify them if you want. And um, you're writing like a few fewer characters yourself, but you're pushing that cost onto the user who has to download 30 kilobytes of JavaScript for, or jQuery for, um, I don't know, some simple DOM manipulation stuff in a lot of cases. Um, and so for me, like the biggest, I think the biggest argument in favor of not using jQuery is that it's it's bad for performance. It's it's going to slow your site down. Um, probably not for you, most, not most, but many of the people I meet who do web development are using nicer computers. They're on better internet connections. They don't, they don't suffer from, I guess I'll call it bandwidth insecurity. Um, like they don't, they don't have to worry about having enough data to consume websites. They often don't have to worry about whether or not their site is going to be fast enough or their bandwidth is going to be fast enough for the sites they're browsing. Um, but a lot of people who are going to use the things you build do. Um, and so for them, uh, there's a real, I think, cost to these things. One of the other interesting like things people bring up with jQuery too is the, um, like browser compatibility, like cross, you know, it makes cross browser compatibility easy. Um, I mean, maybe, but it has the same backwards compatibility now as um, ES5, which is really, really old at this point. It's like five or six years old, at least. I think more than that now at this point, probably like seven yeah. years. Um, and uh, some of the newer stuff that you can take advantage of, you can also, you can polyfill. And that is as trivial as dropping a link to the polyfill.io CDN on your site, which um, detects the browser the person is on and sends back just the polyfills they need. So um, on IE8, that means you're getting back 15 kilobytes of gzipped and minified polyfills, and you can use all the native stuff. Um, so it's half the size of jQuery. You can write native JavaScript, and that's only on the older browsers. So if I'm on like Chrome or Firefox or Edge, um, I get back nothing because um, I support all the new stuff. So And so that... that, that uh, you now don't have to do something like uh, webpack and transpiling and you know trying to yeah and now there's certain things that can't be versions. yeah there's certain things that can't be polyfilled so um uh you know um like template literals can't be polyfilled so if you wanted to use those you do have to either transpile them or say I'm not going to support ie um right uh you know anything that's not an object in JavaScript that can be kind of um, uh, like hacked in. So um, new ways of declaring um, declaring variables, so like let and const. Those have really good browser support these days, but like if you wanted to go even further back than that, they can't be polyfilled. Um, arrow functions can't be polyfilled because they're not an object. It's a different way of declaring a function that the browser just won't recognize. Um, right. But you can it's a difference in a syntax, of, not in, yeah, not in object properties. Yes, exactly, exactly. And so you know, a lot of a lot of stuff can be polyfilled, though. And for me, I think the the bigger thing is, um, it's about performance. It's about universality of access. Um, and there are a lot of folks, even in developed areas, like even in the U.S., even in Canada, even in the U.K. and other parts of Europe, where data is not nearly as fast as um, it is for other parts of the country. Um, and uh, it can be really spotty. It can be the difference between getting on a website or not because things time out and everything breaks. Um, mm -hmm. The other argument, like if you, if you just kind of want to be super selfish about it and say, I don't care about poor people. And I'm going to say that as like a very pointed statement. Like if you, if you don't care about performance, you're literally saying you don't care about poor people. But um, if, if, if you don't care about poor people and you want another argument um, that's maybe a little bit more like you or, you know, like, like uh, selfish, um, learning how kind of the code under the hood works lets you write better code even if you decide to use these tools. Like my, my ability to write jQuery well got infinitely better once I started learning vanilla JavaScript. Um, it's easier for me to pick up other tools and libraries and frameworks now because I know vanilla JavaScript. Um, uh, one of the biggest things I hear from folks who, like I have a lot of students who tried to learn React, couldn't figure it out, 
came to me, learned some vanilla JavaScript, and then went back and found React way easier to pick up because a lot of React conventions are honestly just vanilla JavaScript with some syntactic sugar sprinkled on top. Um, sure. So even if you do eventually want to go do use those things, use those tools, um, knowing vanilla JavaScript is going to make you better at them and help you pick them up faster. And so what, what do you think is the place, like where, where are we now? Where say 10 years ago, you say that what mm -hmm. jQuery did for the web is jQuery basically enabled the modern web. If yeah. I'm paraphrasing and maybe putting sure. some words in your mouth. Yeah. yeah no, um, where are we now as far as the, the frameworks that are out there, React, Vue, Angular? Um, yeah. what, what do they provide and where should they, I don't know, to take your, um, your assertion to its logical conclusion, where should they start <laughs> self-deprecating? Yeah, so I'm going to, um, I'm going to say something I love. Um, I have a tendency, what am I trying to say here? I have a tendency to say inflammatory things. I'm going yeah, to do, do so it. right now. I'm not. I'm not going to back down from this one either. So, uh -huh. jQuery to me, if we're going to use like a really overdone analogy here, jQuery to me feels like the the mill that kicked off the industrial revolution. Like jQuery brought about this amazing new kind of era of JavaScript, made it accessible to a lot more people. Um, really kind of pushed JavaScript beyond what it was able to do. Where we're at today with modern frameworks feels a little bit like when we got to the end of the industrial revolution and all the factories were polluting everything and ruining the environment. Um, and what I mean by that is um, JavaScript has kind of, um, I don't want to say it's grown too big, but it's become this kind of all-purpose tool that we just throw at everything, whether it's appropriate to or not. Um, building a simple blog, use React. Building an e-commerce site, use React. Building a brochure site, use React. Um, and I'm picking on React just because they're the most popular. Um, and it's not that these tools don't have a purpose, but we tend to use them for a lot of things where they don't really belong. Um, and... JavaScript is byte for byte the most expensive piece of data you can send down the wire. The way browsers have to parse and interpret it is way more expensive and performance impactful than a similar amount of HTML or CSS or image files or um, text or any other kind of data you can get back um, from an HTTP request. JavaScript is just terrible for performance. Um, it's also kind of self-replicating. Um, so JavaScript always begets more JavaScript. So you're going to use, you're going to start baseline if you use Reactor View with 30 kilobytes of JS. And then you have to write a whole bunch of JS on top of that to do stuff. Um, your templating is going to be in JavaScript. All of your interactions are going to be in JavaScript. And now we're working with large teams and a lot of them either don't know CSS well or they're stomping in each other's toes with their CSS. Um, so we're going to use JavaScript to create our CSS now too. So now we have, you know, CSS and JavaScript. And so now we've got even more JavaScript on the page and you end up with these bloated behemoths that are one, two, eight megabytes in size, these websites that are just absurdly large. And it is literally like web pollution. Um, this JavaScript is just terrible for the web. It's terrible for performance. It's the most fragile part of the stack. Um, browsers, if, if they see a CSS property or an HTML element, they don't recognize, they just kind of ignore it and move on. Um, you have bad JavaScript or like an error or a file times out or something like that. And everything comes crashing down. It's like this delicate house of cards. And so, um, for me, I think, um, I, I want to see these, these things kind of play out in two ways. I think React and jQuery have done a nice job in showing us um, some conventions, maybe. Um, so like state-based UI is awesome. For me, that's like the biggest, the biggest thing about um, React and Vue. Like the thing I love most about them is rather than having to target specific elements and modify them on a page, you say, here's what the, the UI should look like. And then React says, okay, here's what it does look like. Let's go ahead and just change the stuff that needs changing. You don't have to think about it. You know, Based on this data, here's how it should look. Make it look that way. Um, I would love some browser-native ways to do that um, that don't involve 
starting with 30 kilobytes of JavaScript. Um, and I think once you start to see some of those things in, in the browser, um, I think the need for a lot of these tools starts to go away. I also just wish developers were a little bit more responsible with when and why they use these tools. It's one of those, like, I think you get comfortable with them and then it becomes the only tool you use ever for all the things, um, even when it's not necessarily uh, the best choice. Um, there's a really, like, I, let me, I'm going to pull up a quick stat. I just need to, I just need to find it, but I don't think people really recognize how, um, how much slower for performance JavaScript is than HTML. So last year, Zach Leatherman, uh, he's the guy who created the static site generator, 11T. Um, he tweeted, which has a better first meaningful paint time? a raw 8.5 megabyte HTML file with the full text of every single one of my 27,506 tweets or a client rendered React site with exactly one tweet on it. Um, and so I just doing some quick, uh, some quick math here. So React is 30 kilobytes. Let's say you used another 30 kilobytes of JavaScript to render that one tweet, which I think is ridiculous. I, I can't imagine a situation where that would actually be the case, but let's just, let's just say you do. So that would mean that that 8.5 megabyte HTML file is 140 times bigger than the React site. It also takes 200 milliseconds less to render um, in the browser, wow. even though it's 140 times bigger. Yeah. The React site is 200 milliseconds slower, even though it's a fraction of the size. Um, just because of how expensive JavaScript is to render versus plain old HTML and CSS. Um, it's just, just absolutely terrible for performance. And that doesn't mean we should never use these tools, but, um, yeah, I just, I'd like to see them, um, become more, more rare. I think, sorry, so, I just went on like a yeah. super rant there. So if you guys want to unpack any of that, I just I just went off. Oh man, I've, a lot of it. I've taken some notes, but Colin, yeah, go. It's super interesting, the HTML versus the JavaScript example. It's not even a fair fight. It doesn't matter how big that HTML file gets. It's No, always, it really doesn't. It's always going to win. It could be, it, it, could, it could never stop. You, you could have a server that would randomly generate tweets as long as the connection was open. And the meaningful paint would happen at, at the top of the page first. Mm -hmm. That's one of the things that like JavaScript, you, JavaScript can't do anything until it has everything. HTML can render as soon as it has enough content to fill up the, the first screen. Mm -hmm. so like yeah, it, you're right. It is not a fair fight. Yeah. Uh, HTML is, I, the way that I've heard this de described that I really loved is like HTML and CSS were built in this time where, you know, no one had 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 broadband, right? That that was like mm -hmm. when they they were forged. So they it's very hard to beat their their efficiencies and their their optimizations. They were built for this, as you described, like not everyone has fast internet. These are the tools built when nobody had fast internet. Mm -hmm. It would be really great if you guys put the modem sound in right here. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, so but. You know, like it or not, though we are uh, we are in a professional environment where these larger frameworks are desirable, yeah. um, you know, desirable things to know, and yeah. and oftentimes job requirements. Yeah, uh, and mm -hmm. our our audience is mostly people uh, having just found their first job or looking for their first job in the field. What advice would you give to to folks who? you know, are looking at, at heaps of job application or, or yeah. excuse me, job postings that are saying like, must know react, uh, you know, people who, how do you balance mm -hmm. yeah. the, the need to know this framework, uh, on the professional level with say your ideal of seeing it go away? <laughs> yeah, no. And I, you know, I, at the end of the day, um, you know, you work to make money and to eat and have a place to sleep and all that. So, um, yeah, I like, I, I don't, I don't begrudge anybody learning these things because jobs demand it. Um, and I certainly wouldn't be so, um, well, so these days I absolutely turn down jobs that require like reactor view just cause that's not my thing. 
Um, but I've been doing this for a while and I'm like very fortunate to be in a position where I can do that. Um, but my first job, I was doing jQuery development all day. Um, and, uh, yeah, I don't, you know, like you do what you have to do. Um, you're right. I, every job description I see now wants a framework. It's really hard to find ones that don't. Um, I think, um, you know, the, I think the other piece of this I will say is learning, tools like that, even if you ultimately don't want to use them, learning tools like that um, helps you see how other people have solved problems and can inform how you write code without those tools. Um, so the thing that's always important to remember, as much as I rail against Vue and React and Angular and um, whatever next big thing comes after those three, um, is that they were created to solve real problems the development teams had that other offerings weren't solving for them. Um, so, you know, Angular already existed when Facebook created React. Um, they could have gone with Angular. They chose to go with or build their own thing because Angular wasn't working for their needs. Um, when, um, uh, sorry, uh, just blank for a second there. When Evan Yu created Vue, like React was already a pretty popular thing, but he created Vue anyways, and it's now, you know, kind of the fastest growing in popularity framework. Um, and it solved problems in a very different way than React did. And, um, you know, I think, I think what you see happen is there's a lot of this like, well, it's good enough for Facebook, so it must be good enough for us. And it's like, yeah, no, though. Like, these tools solve problems that they had, not necessarily problems that you have. Um, and, but they're still interesting in that, in that regard. Like, um, I have this little mini like state-based UI DOM diffing reactive coding library, uh, reef JS that I built. Uh, it started off honestly, just cause I wanted to better understand how like data reactivity works under the hood. Gave me a whole new respect for the engineers who built react and view because this stuff is really hard. Um, but, um, uh, you know, there are many times where I, when I'm trying to figure out how I might want to solve something, I'll go open up React and I'll go open up Vue and I'll play around with them a little bit um, just to get a sense for how the really smart engineers at Facebook and like Evan and his team, how they already solved these things. Because, um, you know, it's interesting. And even if I don't agree with their approaches, I can learn something that I can then apply to the way I do things without tools and frame or without these like libraries and frameworks. Um, but, you know, if you're out of college and you're looking for your first job, even if you don't necessarily like those tools, I think you're going to have to kind of like suck it up and deal with it because that's where the market is right now. And one of the things I've found is I've even like in the last like year or so, I've worked on a team that was like all in on Angular and they were starting this new Greenfield project and all, like a huge portion of the team wanted to go with Angular because they had like a bullet list of like five reasons. And um I'm at a point in my career now where I was able to spend, I think, like four or six hours just kind of whipping up a quick demo of a vanilla JS approach that answered all five of those bullets and did it with the same ease that they were saying they needed from Angular to do it. And uh, I was like, look, guys, here's here's what we could do instead. Like, if you hate it, fine, we'll go with your approach, but just you know, give it a try. And ultimately, we ended up going with a like a vanilla JS approach. And I think like for me, if you have, you have one of two, two things you can do either way, you're going to need to learn one of these tools. If you want to have an easier time getting a job, you don't have to, like you could find a job without them, but it's going to be a lot harder. Um, so if you're just out of college, I say, suck it up, learn one of the tools, get a job, get some experience on a team, learn what you love, learn what you don't, you may find you love frameworks. Um, uh, and then you can maybe help inform what the next generation of them looks like, hopefully smaller. Um, but, um, if you hate them, eventually you'll find yourself in a position where you can start to, um, influence teams away from using them. And that's kind of where I'm at in my career arc, um, where a big part of my job is, um, trying to convince people that they can do, do without, or do with less. Um, that doesn't mean never, like sometimes they do legitimately end up being the best choice, but, um, not always. I, 
I I have like six questions I want to ask you right now. Um, <laughs> yeah, that you... happens because I tend to not shut up. I'm really sorry. No, it's great. It's great. Um, can you talk a little more about? You said that you're in a, a point in your career arc where you're yeah. you're you know working towards uh, trying yeah. to use uh, again paraphrasing you. I think is the the minimal tool necessary for the job. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you? Can you talk a little more about the beginning of your of your career and that arc? Uh, you, yeah, you oh, are sure. not a you did not have a computer science degree, is that correct? No, no, I'm. Um, I describe myself a little bit as a Winnie the Pooh. Um, so if if you're ever <laughs> okay. familiar, some some of your listeners may not be familiar with the show because I think it's still on TV now. I think it's on Disney Plus. But like, he was a very happy little bear who bumbled his way through life, and he would just kind of he never really had a plan. He would just like. I'm just going to go wherever the wind takes me and like, I'm going to enjoy everything while I'm there. When I went to college, I cycled through, I think like five different majors, um, like one a semester until I found one that like really stuck. Um, I ended up graduating with a degree in anthropology, which I found incredibly interesting. It's the study of people, um, both modern cultures and from an evolutionary perspective. There's not like a ton of jobs for which anthropology is like immediately applicable. Um, it's a little bit like an art history degree. It's really interesting, but not, um, uh, you know, not the most marketable degree. So this was like, kind of like, why did I just go to college get this degree that I'm not going to do anything with? Um, and so I kind of fell into human resources. Um, I got an internship in HR just to kind of like try something out. And I liked it good enough to go do it after, after, uh, college. And, um, I had a lot of opinions about how HR was kind of like old school and could do things better. And so I started blogging and I wanted to have more control over the way my WordPress theme looked. Um, So I started teaching myself HTML and CSS and PHP. Um, And eventually I became known as like the HR guy who knows web stuff at my company. Um, And I was working in the training development department and I was teaching people... um, uh, like career guidance stuff. So how to put together a resume, how to find a new job, um, things like that. And um, my manager and I were experimenting with some interesting ways of um, learning that weren't putting butts in seats for eight hours and talking to them. So um, something a little bit more like YouTube, five minute video, just what you need and then you can get on with your life kind of stuff. Um, and uh we had kind of shopped around what putting together like a quick little like proof of concept, minimum viable product thing might look like. And the quotes we were getting back were astronomical. So I think our internal IT team was like, we'll charge you a hundred thousand dollars. It'll take 12 months and it probably won't have these things you need. An external agency was like half a million dollars and we'll have it done in three months. So, um, and this was like just for an MVP. We weren't even sure this was going to work. We just wanted to like experiment. So um, my manager was like, ah, you know web stuff. Can you build this? And I was like, I don't think so. I don't know. Like, I don't know backend-y stuff. And he's like, um, he's like, well, can you learn? And that was the question that changed my entire career. Just that one, can you learn? Having a manager who like, I don't know, just thought like, well, give it a shot. So I spent two weeks just diving into the bowels of Stack Overflow and um, like hacking together this disgusting horrible it's the worst thing i've ever built in my entire life um web app that like it was held together with glue and duct tape um metaphorically and uh but it worked and um i don't think anything ever came of it because it just it didn't didn't really take off internally in our culture but um in that moment like when i was done and i looked and i had gone from like this crazy idea to like a working thing i was like this is what i want to do for the rest of my career like i don't forget hr that's boring i want to go do this um, and so I started looking for um, for jobs, and it took me two years to find a human re- or to find my first web development job. Um, I bombed more technical interviews than I can count, um, largely because I did not have enough JavaScript experience. I just didn't know JS well enough, and everybody was looking for that at the time. I wasn't enough of a designer for design jobs, and I wasn't enough of like a JavaScript developer for the JavaScript jobs. I think today you can get by knowing just HTML and CSS. There are some like really important roles that involve just knowing those. But at the time, everybody wanted JavaScript. And uh, yeah, so that kind of started the whole thing for me. Um, I learned JavaScript through jQuery. 
And then I kept bombing tech interviews because I could copy paste from the jQuery tutorials well enough, but I had no idea why I was doing what I was doing or how it worked. And so I started trying to convert those jQuery things I built into vanilla JavaScript things like scripts and plugins and stuff. Um, and then I started writing articles about, hey, if you did this in jQuery, here's how you do it in vanilla JS. Um, and uh, over time, I, I think I had someone who's like, hey, I know you, you're the vanilla JS guy. And I had never called myself that before, but that's kind of how the whole, the whole thing started. A lot of times when, uh, and I, I, you know, I have like a little bit of inside knowledge because I used to work in HR, but a lot of times when hiring managers put together job descriptions, it's like, we're just going to throw a whole bunch of spaghetti at this thing and see what sticks. Um, and so they throw in all sorts of buzzwords and things. And like you see all these entry-level job descriptions that want three years of experience. Like what the F does that even mean? Like that makes no sense. Like what? So um, like don't, don't wait until you feel like absolutely ready to apply for those jobs, to go for those opportunities, because there's a good chance you're going to miss out on some stuff. Um, the other important thing is um, you can practice interviewing all you want, but um, you're going to, you're going to be terrible at it until you actually like go on a couple of real ones. Um, and like mock interviews are great, but real interviews like that trial by fire is where you really kind of get better at it. And your first few interviews are going to go terribly. And you do not want your first terrible interviews to be for jobs that you really want and you feel you're qualified for because <laughs> it's like super demoralizing. Um, one of the things that helped with bombing all those interviews was I learned very quickly where I needed to do some more work. Um, so getting asked these questions where I was like, uh, I don't know. Um, I then, okay, now I need to go back and I need to study that. I need to learn that. Um, and I didn't feel super terrible about it because I also kind of felt like I maybe wasn't ready. Um, the toughest thing with that is just not getting so discouraged that you give up entirely. But, um, it was for me, like having those, those bad interviews, I went through so many of them that the, by the time I interviewed for a job, I really was like, yes, I can do this. Um, I was super confident. I had been through a ton of these. I knew kind of the process and the formula. I felt way more comfortable um, and, uh, and ended up, you know, doing a really good job. Um, so, yeah, I, I, if there's a takeaway here, it's please don't wait until you feel like you're absolutely 100% ready before you start applying for jobs and trying to interview for things. Um, cause I think you're really doing yourself a disservice. You're probably more ready than you realize. And you're also probably going to do a bad job with those first few interviews. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. I think people forget that, that getting a job is a skill in, in and of itself yes. and it requires some, some practice and some knocks to, to, <laughs> yeah. you know, shake off, um, that you can't just do it. Like you said, you can't just do it all on paper in mock interviews and then go out. Yeah. It, yeah you, it would be like going and competing in the Olympics, having never competed in real competition before, right? You've only ever practiced in, in your own home gym. <laughs> yeah. It's a different, like, even if you have all the, like, like, um, you sit like mock interview, you sit with a friend, they ask you a question, you answer it when you're like, when you're there, you're in a suit and tie that, you know, your, your shirt collars are a little too tight and you're feeling sweaty. And like you had to go to the bathroom, but you were too afraid to ask because you were like worried you were going to be late when they called your name. And so like, you're sitting there and you have to pee and you're like, you've never done this before. And the guy's asking a lot of questions and you really want the job. It's just really, really stressful. You go through it a few well, times, and even like, way less stressful, but you know, those first few are so terrible. Even just trying to figure out whether you should wear a shirt and tie. Right. Go on a few interviews right. where you're overdressed or underdressed oh and my figure gosh, out how so to start awkward. reading between the lines of the posting <laughs> to figure out what you should wear. You know, one of the things I've started doing just along those lines, um, one of the things you can absolutely do is call the front desk and of the company and ask them what people in the department you're interviewing with wear. Um, it's oh, one of those, like, a, I didn't, that's great advice. I never knew you could do that until someone in HR told me, oh yeah, no, yeah, just call and ask. And I'm like, oh, gee, that makes perfect sense. Like you can save yourself so much like pain and guesswork by just asking like, yeah. <laughs> who would have thought? Um, so yeah, that's a, that's a really good one. And then the general rule of thumb is like, you want to dress like just a notch better. So like if everybody's in t-shirt and jeans, maybe wear like a polo or a button down, um, maybe a tie 
definitely not like a jacket or a suit. Um, you know, if most people wear like jeans with button downs, maybe throw on a jacket or a tie just to snazz it up just a little bit. Like you never want to be like, oh, who's this? Who's this like really overdone person? They're not going to fit in here. Um, I'm using male examples. I just realized like jacket and tie doesn't work for like a female or gender non-binary audience. And I'm sorry about that. But, um, you know, take that example and apply it to your wardrobe. Um, uh, But yeah, yeah, that kind of thing can be super, super stressful too. Um, And you do eventually learn to read between the lines. Yeah. But I think people, like you said, people don't realize how much they can just ask. Yeah. The the dress code mm-hmm. is a good example, but like, I don't know how many interviews I had gone on before I realized I could just say, what should I prepare for you? <laughs> and like, just, right. just those, whatever, mm-hmm. five words, I think that's about five words mm-hmm. is like, is huge. <laughs> and like, right. already you're like, already you're in a better light with the interviewer. Like mm-hmm. you look more proactive and then you can be more proactive <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, the other thing like that always catches me or used to always catch me by surprise is especially with in-person interviews, um, which probably aren't happening right now, but um, since we're recording in the middle of a pandemic or whatever, but um, you know, how often you show up to these things and they say, Oh, do you have a copy of your resume? I forgot to print one out. And um, you know, like getting caught off guard, having not printed one and then you get nervous and then everything after that just kind of cascades into awful. Um, The other thing I learned from being in HR is um, people do all sorts of like really like stupid things to try and like make you uncomfortable to see how you perform under pressure, which is such nonsense because like, that's not how the job really is. This is just like one of the dirty secrets about recruiting is it's, it's not as scientific as a lot of, I think recruiting professionals would like to think. And so they come up with all these like pseudoscience things to try and make it feel more scientific, even when it's not. And that happens to be one of them. So like I've, I've heard of recruiters or hiring managers who will ask that question and they just deliberately didn't print out a resume to see if one, you thought enough to bring one and to see how you, you react when like you get caught off guard. It's like a, like a gotcha kind of trick. Um, one of the things you'll eventually learn is you'll see patterns of, both good and bad behavior. And you'll learn that hiring managers who do stuff like that are potentially red flags that you want to avoid. Um, You know, like I did a phone interview once where they kind of did this. It was just supposed to be a casual, like we're just going to get to know you and then we'll schedule a tech interview. And they flipped it immediately into a tech interview, which I hadn't prepared for with all these like gotcha questions, which I obviously bombed. But even if I hadn't, I don't think I would have wanted to work there because like, yeah, that's, that's slimy, you know, like, So, yeah, yeah. The hiring thing is really, um, it's tough. It's really tough. So I mentioned a couple times I used to, you know, work in HR and I have all this kind of like how the sausage is made kind of knowledge. I actually have a, um, a free career guide I put together. I literally, I just took all this like, Hey, here's how it works behind the scenes and like slapped it into a quick ebook. Um, it is a hundred percent free. You can grab it at go make things.com slash career dash guide, um, career guide. Um, but uh, yeah, that might be just, you know, if you're kind of going through this process, might be a nice thing for you to pick up and read. It has my um, my resume template that I use for my own resume that I've had really good luck with. And it's got a whole bunch of tricks, like how to get your resume past the robots that filter them out and actually like in front of a real human. So you have a better chance of being brought in for an interview. All sorts of like cool little how the sausage is made tips and tricks. Oh, that's great. I, I a lot of the... Uh especially bootcamp grads that I've been talking to recently have been struggling with how do I make my resume not obscure the fact that I am straight out of a bootcamp, but also yeah. get past the robots. Yeah. It's tough. Cause the, the robots, it just for anybody who's listening, who doesn't know, this is how this works. Like with the internet, because it's so easy to send your resume recruiters now get flooded with like thousands of them and they can't reasonably read through all of them. So most job search and like job boards and like even job postings on company websites use some filtering system that will scan your resume for keywords and will never show it to a human unless it hits a certain like threshold of match. Um, and so there's some things you can do to kind of sneak past those robots in a, 
an ethical way. Like you don't want to like con your way into a job that you're not qualified for, but you do want to make sure your resume gets seen if you are qualified. Cause like sometimes um, just like a, like a really simple example, right? Like hiring managers can be lazy. And so they will, um, they will, the keywords, a lot of times the ones they choose are ones from the job description itself. And so like, if the job description says, um, you know, uh, unit testing experience and you have JavaScript testing experience, uh, you know, doing like test driven development, don't say TDD or test driven development, say unit testing. Cause that's the phrase they used in the job description. Like there's a good chance you could have the right experience and still get filtered out if you use the wrong keywords. Um, you know, so it's just like lots of little stuff like that. Um, these are the kind of things like you accumulate an absurd amount of knowledge over, <laughs> over a career that you don't have when you're just starting out. And if no one tells you, like you'll never learn, you know? Yeah. I feel like there's a whole episode to be spun out of this subject right here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We could always do a, a, like another one at some point if you want to, or we can just talk like nerdy job search stuff. Happy to do that. Yeah. I, I think, yeah, we may schedule that. I think yeah. That I mean, no, you know, no worries. We want to. Yeah, no, um, no worries if not, but, uh, you know. No, no, I, I think definitely. I think that would be of interest to, to the listeners that we have. Um, so, you know, you've been doing this for a long time. Uh, you're 100% full of confidence and have zero imposter syndrome, right? <laughs> um, I am, I am very full of confidence, yes, but I do also have a lot of, um, a lot of imposter syndrome for sure. Um, that, it was such a huge part of my early career, um, but it never really goes away. Um, it fades. Um, <clears throat> and now it's a little bit more situational. So um, the thing that always 100% triggers my imposter syndrome these days is accessibility related stuff. I care about accessibility tremendously, but it is very nuanced. And um, there's a lot of... Um, like a lot of the approaches you make to building things that are accessible for people who have physical conditions, motor neurological conditions, cognitive issues. Um, it's very contextual and it's not a one size fits all thing. So like what might work well for a visually impaired user isn't necessarily the same thing that works for a sighted user who navigates with a keyboard because of some like muscular issue that makes it so they can't use a mouse. Um, and that doesn't necessarily work for someone who has a cognitive issue like um uh, uh like down syndrome where they can do all the same things that you and i can do but they process information a little bit more slowly so like the way you do things can like have an impact on how well they can actually use your site um and there's all these little kind of like nuances and caveats and gotchas that um as soon as i feel like i've gotten a handle of it i learn that i don't um and I'm always afraid of very confidently recommending a solution to something that ends up being wrong. Um, and for me these days, it's less about me looking like an idiot and more about me not wanting to recommend to thousands of people who read my newsletter every day, something that ends up being wrong and then having them spread that knowledge to a bunch of other people and kind of contribute to like the inaccessibility issue we have on the web today. Um, so that is, um, uh, that is my big, um, that's my, like my biggest kind of imposter syndrome trigger. Um, especially because like, I, I have some people who read my, my stuff who are themselves accessibility experts. And, uh, I'm always worried that like, if they see something I've done that's wrong, they're going to be like, Oh, if he's wrong about this, is he also wrong about all this other stuff? Um, you know, so, um, has that ever been the case? Uh, I've had they people come to you and, and called you a fraud and brought um, their pitchforks and Torches. One of the um one of the things I've been really fortunate about is I have um I have a really good friend uh, Scott O'Hara, who is um, an accessibility expert. Um, that's like literally his job. He audits websites for accessibility and creates reports and recommendations for people. Um, and he uh he often will be the like the kind uncle for me. He'll um he'll pull me aside and like very bluntly and and firmly but but you know politely because we're friends um he's not like a total jerk about it but he'll tell me when i've screwed up um and he's not like he doesn't like tiptoe around it or anything he's just like this is wrong um here's what you should be doing instead and uh i like i've gotten to the point now where a lot of times i run stuff by him before i 
before I share it, just because uh, it's better to kind of check ahead of time than afterwards. But um, it's good to have people like that um, in in your life. Um, it's just it's really nice to have whether it's accessibility or some other sort of blind spot of uh, of yours. It's just really nice to have someone who um, who will pull you aside and tell you when you've when you've messed up, even if you didn't ask for it. Um, it can be uncomfortable at times, but it's just it's nice to have. Um, to have someone like that. Um, Scott's stuff is great, by the way. Uh, if you go to scottohara.me, um, he writes semi-infrequently, um, but uh, he does have just like a ton of amazing articles on accessibility topics. Um, and a lot of times when I ask him questions, instead of answering me, he'll just like drop a link into the chat window <laughs> so I can go read something he's already written about it. Um, yeah, so Scott's, Scott's awesome. Um, and yeah, whatever, whatever it is like that you kind of feel like you have a blind spot on finding, finding people who you can surround yourselves with, who will tell you when you've messed up without you prompting them is just, it's an awesome thing at any point in your career. Yeah, I agree. I, I think that that is one of the pieces of advice that I would always give students when I was teaching is don't hide, you know, don't, mm -hmm. don't you won't advance until you can sort of put your stuff in front of other people and have them evaluate it for you. you you'll never learn all by yourself in a corner. You know? One of the nice things about blogging and just sharing what you know publicly is if you don't have a Scott in your life, um, the internet is more than happy <laughs> to tell you all the ways you have screwed up. Um, not always as kindly as like having someone like a Scott is. Um, you need to maybe develop a little bit of a, a tougher skin. And again, here's where my privilege as a white man like really benefits me. Like people of color and women, like the types of attacks they get when they're wrong about tech stuff is way more aggressive than the kinds of things that like I get from people. Um, these days, the biggest things people give me slack about is uh like typos but um you know uh it's still it's it's so i, I say, take this with a grain of salt obviously like I, I i i i am privileged so i can do this but um you'll you'll instantly hear from people if uh if you've shared something that is that is not correct um sometimes you'll hear from people if you shared something that is correct and someone just thinks you're wrong like that also <laughs> happens too yeah. um uh, on a, a somewhat frequent basis but like I think what holds a lot of people back from that, aside from, you know, like the toxicity that can sometimes be Twitter or the internet in general, um, is, uh, well, now I've put this thing in writing and I was wrong. So it's out there for everybody to see. And it's like, well, yes, but the web is also like a very flexible and fluid medium. So like this just happened to me Friday, right? I wrote, um, I wrote an article on how to use the, um, the new form data um, method to take fields from a form and serialize them into an object. And I shared this approach where you can use a for of loop to loop through all of the keys and the form data method, like the, the thing that it returns and you can get like a nice little object of key value pairs. And then someone's like, hey, actually you can do that with this one line of JavaScript instead of the like eight that you shared here. And um, I was like, oh, you're right. So I just went and updated the article. Like it wasn't a huge deal. You know what I mean? Like I just went back and I like, I added an update, like here's a new way to do it. That's better than what I shared above. Ignore that. And, uh, and you kind of move on with your life, you know? Um, and that's how you learn. Like I never would have learned about that super awesome one-liner if I hadn't shared my still works, but not quite as good approach, um, publicly. I think people don't give enough credit to still works, but not perfect. Yes. Yeah. Still works, but not perfect is, is totally great. And like this person was really nice about it. They were like, Oh, Hey, you can also do this. Um, but yeah, I am, um, I, I love still works, but not perfect. I've built a whole career on it. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, um, and you know, like you, you iterate and you get, you get better over time. Like just cause you learn a new or better way to do things doesn't mean you have to go back and like redo everything you did before, you know, like, Again, it's still fact, works. You probably shouldn't. Oh yeah, I mean, you'll just introduce that's a new professional bugs and... skill you learn, right? Is is <laughs> when is what I did two years ago and still works fine, even though yeah. whatever coding conventions I used now mm -hmm. offend my sensibilities. 
Yeah, yeah, that is one of the um, <laughs> that is one of the nicer things too about um, like what do I want to say? So like, just to kind of maybe bring this full circle, like one of the other things I really like about using browser native kind of stuff is um, I don't have to worry about rot quite as much. Like jQuery has been really good about like if you're tied to an old version of jQuery, your old jQuery code is probably going to run forever. But um, mm-hmm. like a lot of these frameworks, like you, you, you do some updates and then a whole bunch of like you, you update to get some new features and then all the old stuff breaks, like to get the new features, you have to update your old code and out of the box JavaScript is kind of nice in the fact that the old stuff never really goes away and buying into the new stuff doesn't obsolete the old stuff. So you can have like old and newer code bases living together simultaneously. And like, you don't have to go rewrite everything. You might be tempted to, because it looks like, you know, it's just, it's offensive to look at, but like, it'll still work if you don't touch it. And that's like a really kind of nice, nice thing. You can even drop in the newer tools on top of the vanilla stuff and it'll still work. Um, So, yeah. Yeah. We've been at this, quite a while uh we should probably wrap up and i'll go eat lunch i guess yeah um chris where can people find you if you go to gomakethings.com you can find um just a whole bunch of stuff uh career resources some of the vanilla js stuff we talked about um a form where you can sign up for my newsletter if you want to get some some tips every weekday um and contact information so if you have any questions about anything we talked about and you want to reach out and ask some more stuff you can uh, you can find me thanks a lot yeah, thanks, Chris. Thank you guys so much for, for having me on the show. This was a lot of fun. I could probably talk for another three hours. This was awesome. Hey, thanks again for listening. As promised, here's your reminder to rate and review our podcast, which helps other people find us. Go to ratethispodcast.com slash exceptionswelcome, which will let you leave a review on your podcasting platform of choice. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.